burned out, worn out, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythm of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So Psalms 19 verse 9 says that the fear of the Lord is clean. But what does that what does that mean? What does it mean the fear of the Lord is clean? I think there's places in God that we can access without coming through the fear of the Lord. There's many places we can access from a lot of different perspectives, but there are um, places that are reserved, I'll say it that way, that our access is through the fear of the Lord. It's not that God withholds those places from us. It's just that if I don't have the fear of the Lord, I can't access them. They're always, it's always a free gift and the invitation is always come. But how am I going to come? And if the, the fear of the Lord is clean, what, what, what does that, how is it clean? Well, if you read on in Psalms 19, it speaks about, Lord, protect me from the things that I don't see about me. The fear of the Lord uh, exposes, helps us see the things that shouldn't be there. Because in the fear of the Lord, I'm always conscious of his greatness and his splendor. And so I'm coming in with a humble heart. You're not going to come in the fear of the Lord without a humble heart. But in a humble heart, then I'm teachable. In a humble heart, Holy Spirit comes along and says, so, Robert, what about that right there? Have you thought about that lately? Well, no, I've been trying to avoid that, actually. Well, let's chat. And the fear gives me access to actually come and go, okay, Lord, yeah. Yeah, I just lay that down. I just lay it down. Maybe this is the umpteenth time that I've laid it down, but I just lay it down. Because your presence is richer to me, more valuable to me than holding on anything that I consider value in self. So the fear of the Lord is clean. So each time we, we enter in, each time, like has already been exhorted through by Brooke and different things that have already happened, the Lord's heart is just come, come. And the long and the short of it is I can't 
do the fear of the Lord if the Lord doesn't teach me how to do that? Because my soul is not going to give ground to what the fear of the Lord requires. And so the Lord teaches me. So we lay it down. On a day like today, and Monday at 3 o'clock, we pick it back up because I'm sure I can handle it. Next week we come in. The Lord's still talking the same thing. I lay it down, and I make it all the way to Tuesday, and I pick it up. But like anything that we're learning, once we've learned it, Time will run by and all of a sudden we'll realize I haven't picked that thing up. Not only have I not picked it up, I'm not sure where I left it, which is a good thing. Don't go looking for where you left it. Just be content. I know in quizzing mind, you know, minds want to know. Well, just stop it and don't go looking for it. Let it lie wherever it is. Just learn his fear. Actually, Psalms 19.9 says this, the fear of the Lord <clears throat> is clean, enduring forever. So it's not a fleeting thing. It's not something that been there, done that type of thing. It endures forever. That means on a certain day, each of us will actually be standing in glory and the fear of the Lord will be there. It, it, it won't, it's not going to leave us. We don't mature out of it. We actually mature into it. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, than, even than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is 1912. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. That's one of the interesting things about our errors. We really can't di discern them. And uh, we need him, we need the work of the Holy Spirit within us to, uh, to, reveal, to reveal those things. And the good news is he knows how to do that in love. There are those that accuse him of this, but he's not a harsh taskmaster. He also deserves a lot more credit than what he's getting because he's not near who they say he is. I don't, uh, 
Well, that's enough. I, that's a whole sermon right there. I could have just, I could have launched. I, I'm showing constraint. That would have been hot off the press, too, because it just showed up. I, I, this morning, I said last week I wanted to, to um, this week to kind of go into a little bit of detail from what we watched last week. And I, I'm going to start with reading this because I realized when I looked through my notes, I may sound pessimistic today. And I just want to go on record that I'm not. All right? So this is my perspective. And it's out of uh, Revelations 21, starting with verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. And its gates will never need to shut by day, and there will no, be no need, and there will be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So when, when I talk about where we are in, in, in world events and where, where the church is, I just want you to know that, that those verses right there are my theme. There's a day when Jesus returns, and when he returns, he sets it right. Now, where I diverge from some of my friends, I don't believe he returns with an atomic bomb and a big torch and blows it all up and burns it all down. <laughs> He's actually returning to reign and to establish his rule in eternity and to fix the things that we on this side of his return carry in our hearts, the places of the things we know that are broke, the things that we know are unjust, the things that, that we... Um, we, we put energy to and we put voice to and we put uh, all the things that we, we ourselves add into that it, to see that things are better. But we're all, I, I think we all admit that we're all also faced with the place that in my best efforts with something that I come out going, wow, I re really did good there, it's still not 100%. We, we, you know, if we look at, um, well, if we just look at all across the board, and I've talked about this before when I talked about the seven virtues of God, they all point to the fact that as humans, as humanity, there's, we can fix certain things and we have a responsibility to fix as much as we can, as far as we can, where justice reigns, where, where humanity lives in, a, in a, an environment that God has, has intended, but I'll never completely hit the mark. And then we also live in the reality that there are those times where one generation has moved the bar and another generation chose to lower the bar. So we, we live in this ebb and flow of things in, in history. 
right? But at the end of history, it is still his story. And he's the one that sets it right at the end. So if, if you think I'm sounding pessimistic today, forgive me, I'm not really trying to be, but where we live at the moment, things are as they are. And I'm also not gonna be Pollyanna and pre pre pretend that everything is awesome when it's not. Because in the church, we've been called to live in this world and to live in such a way that the light of the kingdom, the light of the gospel that's within us is transforming people around us, right? Not because I'm beating them over the head with the gospel club, but because I'm actually loving them and giving my life for them to some extent so that they can see that they're found and enter into all that that means. So last week, the video we watched dealt with, um, dealt with uh, private property and the rule of law. And so this is probably gonna be as negative as I'm gonna be, right? I'm just, I'll start, I'll get all the negative stuff out of the way and then I'll work towards positive. How's that? So just like history, I'm gonna take you low, but I'm gonna bring you up, or I hope I am. So, and these are my personal thoughts right here. But when I look at our country, we're, we're in a, when it comes to personal rights, our country is moving away from personal rights uh, which was shaped by the original government of this country, which was a republic. And as we're moving away from being a republic to a more socialistic view, instead of personal rights, individual rights, even though that's the mantra that everybody's shouting, that's not what they're talking about. But personal rights as defined in our constitution is, is being pushed away, as, as I said, as the republic form of our government is, is under assault. And what's coming out of that is group rights on a, from a democratic system ruled by current voices. And if you look at the difference between a republic, which is a representative government, right? We don't all go to Washington once a month, maybe better if we tried that, but well, we do, when we do it, they call it a riot. But anyway, we don't all go to Washington once a month and vote on something. We have a, we have a representative. I have a green light, now I am. I need to put it in another pocket. I think when I put my hands in my pocket, I shut the thing off. So that's a republic form of government. And so we elect elected officials, those elected officials both at a state, at a town, state, federal level, they represent us. If we don't like the way they represent us,
it's not a perfect system. Uh, now I don't know what to do. In a, in a, I'm, now I almost feel like I have to stand behind this. So, so that you understand that. That's, that's how the representative system works. The problem, the difference between representative government and a democracy, and if you've noticed in our country, the language, uh, probably over the last 20 years, we espouse democracy. And we refer to the United States as a democracy. We're not a democracy. We never were a democracy. Our founding fathers were afraid of a democracy. Because a democracy is the majority rules, which leaves room for all kinds of cruelty. And if you have a democracy without the rule of law, you're really in trouble. But they've changed the wording intentionally. So now that, now that we are becoming more of a democracy than we, were a re, we are a republic, what that means is we're at a place where the, the, uh, the loudest voices get the most traction. And the loudest voices, their, their, um, their majority is their volume, not their numbers. Where in a republic, everybody has a representative. This is the representative's voice, right? So as we move to a, a, social, a social democratic form of government, national government, state government, then it, that, that, whole, that changes how everything takes place. So to me, when I'm talking about uh, individual rights, and the, the right of owning property. I'm, gonna, I'm laying this kind of as a foundation as to why, why owning individual property, having the ability to own property and have that protected by the rule of law is paramount to a free society. Which is, okay, now I'm, I, okay, stop, stop. I'm running ahead. My brain is running ahead. So if you, if you watch today, you watch what's the, in the media, what's the general assault, even within our politicians, because the wonderful thing with politicians, once they get elected, then they kind of chart their own course. And they're doing, what, they're doing what's best for them. And, and I find I'm hard pressed to, I used to try to be somewhat optimistic that somewhere in there, somewhere, they cared something about Robert Muncie. I, I've, I've stopped taking that pill. Um, and now I realize that, no, they don't. Um, and, and then the, the second pill that I stopped taking was that I needed them to care about me. So if we, if we look right now, what's happening? So there's a push to diminish the Constitution. There's a, there's a huge push saying that the, the Constitution is a living document, which means that the voice of the majority should have the right to change the Constitution whenever they want to change the Constitution to whatever the Constitution should be saying that is favorable to me. So there's a big push 
to change the Constitution. One of the things that makes that easy to do is when they, they do their homework, and the first thing they do is constantly bombard us with how the Constitution is a failure, how it's failed at this, it's failed at that, it's, it didn't represent this, it didn't do that. And yes, we can go back, and no form of government is perfect, and we can go back and say the Constitution of the United States is not perfect, which is why the Founding Fathers put in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights the ability for amendments. But the, way you, the, the point with the Founding Fathers was you amend it where it needs to be amended. You don't destroy it because you think you have a better idea. So the Constitution is under attack. The second thing that's, that's really come into play probably in the last six years, probably more than I remember it in my lifetime, although uh, it's obviously been there because they've tampered with it before. But the second thing is to disqualify the role of the Supreme Court. So now there's a big push going again. Let's disqualify the judges. So Clarence Thomas took his, his attack. They went after him. Um, they just recently went after Sotomayor, so they're, they're being, they're being um, bipartisan in the attack. Because the point is, we don't care about a Democrat or Republican, we want to destroy the Supreme Court. Because the Supreme, the Supreme Court, with our founding fathers, the way our republic of a government works, is the rule of law is paramount. But if you're going to have the rule of law, I have to have the ability to appeal, but at a certain point in my ability to appeal, there has to be a final place where somebody makes a decision and said yes or no. And historically, we've respected the 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 rule of the or the the role of the courts, and we understand when I go to court, very rarely does everybody get everything they want when they go into court. It gets battered back and forth. There's arguments back and forth. And ultimately, a jury or a judge is going to make the decision, make a ruling. Now, again, the way our founding fathers saw things with the court system, if, if all courts are, are equal, then there's no, there's no place for appeal. So if the first tier of courts is corrupted, if a judge is corrupted, if the jury was bought off, whatever it was, I still have a right of appeal. Now, my ultimate right of appeal is to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court still says, nope, we don't agree with you, I have no other place to appeal. Historically, you know, we, we can have our moment, we can be disappointed, we can be angry even, but we respect the rule of law. That's what the judge says. That's what I've got to live with. Now, no, we're not going to have that because the way you ruled has hurt my feelings. And if you've hurt my feelings, you have to go. So the rule of law isn't what we're looking at as the supreme thing. It's just the feelings in the moment of the majority of the voices, which often are not the, the majority in number, but they are the majority in volume. So the attack is to, to bring down the Constitution. Second is to bring down the Supreme Court for the rule of law. And finally, the, the other piece of this is we then also vilify those that are given the task of enforcing the law. 
So we've been doing that for probably the last 15 years. And I'm not saying that every case that comes up doesn't need to come up. I'm not saying police should be able to just go up and beat somebody up because they don't like the color of your skin or they don't like the way you talk to them. I'm not arguing in favor of that. And those things should be dealt with. But what I am saying is, in the United States of America, on a daily basis, there, there are men and women law officers that serve the general public that are not breaking the law, that are not mistreating people, that are not racist, that are not out to do anybody in. They go to work in the morning, they put on a uniform, and they're there to protect us, the citizenry, that we can live in a place of safety. And the majority of the police officers across this country do that 24-7, 365 days a year. And when there's a bad apple, the bad apple needs to be dealt with. But a bad apple doesn't make a bad basket. But that's where we're at. Everything's a bad basket. So what, what's the re what happens when we... Um, as this starts to unfold. First, the law, the, the rule of law is just replaced with the rule of the majority. So it's no longer does law is the final say, it's the majority, which results in anarchy. As, I, as an, again, this is my opinion, this is my negative beef for today. So that, that results in anarchy. That's followed by the establishment of some form of fascism that comes in to deal with the anarchy. Fascism leads us in one of two directions. It either leads us to communism. I mean, it can stay fascism in itself, and, and there would be some push to try to get it to socialism, but even if we call it socialism, it's still, you still have the, the ruling elite who control all of us and tell us what we do, how we live, and, and so on. And there is no appeal. If they walk into my house under that system and they say, we're arresting you because we, we saw the live stream, and they drag me out and they say, well, we're going to put you in jail, I have no appeal. I won't even have a trial. They'll just put me in jail, and I'll be there to either die there, I'm killed there, or someday they're like, what were you doing here anyway? Well, I don't know. It's been 30 years. I forget why I'm here. Well, they let me out. But I have, I have, no, I have no protection. And as I read in, in Revelation, which is where I started, so that... I don't want you walking out of here going, well, it's hopeless. It is absolutely not hopeless because the kingdom of God is leavening the whole earth. And we are being used to establish kingdom rule on the earth in the face of world systems that are corrupt. There's always been world systems that corrupt, that are corrupt. Christianity began in the Roman Empire, for crying out loud. And not only did it survive, it changed the Roman Empire. You know, everybody kind of, I don't want to go down the road with Constantine, but, but with Constantine, he's not really the one that, you know, they, they blame him for changing a lot of things in Christianity, which historically really isn't true. With Constantine, it was more the fact he realized he had already lost the war with the church. 
and if I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. Now, that's a very simplified <clears throat> statement there, but uh, Christianity had already fully taken, um, not fully taken over, but had, had already fully integrated into the Roman, the Roman society. And if it had not been for Christianity, when Rome fell, that whole European Mediterranean would have been in a whole mess. And we can all throw stones at the Catholic Church, but when the Catholic Church emerged out of the smoke of the Roman Empire, it was the church that brought some level of balance to, uh, to the world system to that, at that time. All right. So the kingdom has been a major influence on the systems of this world and will continue to be a voice of, of uh, heaven, of heaven's will and principles on the earth. You know, world systems, no matter how noble they are at the beginning, they're still run by man, and then they, so they're going to have to deal with the corruption of man's heart. Our founding fathers actually saw that and put in place through the Constitution and the Bill of Rights the best they could, places of protection. And you do know the Bill of Rights, really the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are not two documents that are telling people how they should live. They're two documents telling a government what it can't do. That's the, whole, that's the main purpose in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It's telling the government what you cannot do because our founding fathers understood left to itself, the government will do that every time. Because people in power, and then you add money into the mix, very few hearts can stand against that level of, of, um, of uh, thank you. But through it all, the kingdom is still expanding, expanding. Yahweh's voice is still speaking righteousness, peace, and joy. And there's a place in each man's heart where that voice can, can reverberate and people can hear. And, and so I'm not at all pessimistic, even in the short term, it might mean some troubled times. So let's get into property rights. Why are property rights important? So Christopher Collier and James Lincoln Collier point out in their book, The Decision in Philadelphia. Speaking of the Founding Fathers, those men had an almost religious respect for property, that the rights of property were um, inviolable, and that the Constitution itself is the embodiment of the rights of property as developed primarily by John Locke in the 17th century. If you've never read John Locke, it, I would encourage you to just go back and read his stuff. That a man in the 17th century, what he was writing about, what we're experiencing and have experienced as a country, the guy, um, I can say he was brilliant, but I can also say he was hearing what was being released on the earth from heaven's voice. Uh, Walter Mead points out in his book, The United States Constitution, the framers were favorably disposed to history's great philosophers who held that concerns for freedom could not be separated from concerns for property, and that the framers knew inadequately secured property rights could render vulnerable even the fundamental liberties of speech press, and meaningful political participation. Our founding fathers, some of them said it like this. John Adams said, the moment the idea is admitted into society, 
that property is not as sacred as the laws of God and that there is not a force of law and public just to protect it, just to protect it, anarchy, anarchy and tyranny commence. If thou shalt not covet and thou shalt not steal, were not commanded of heaven, they must be made invaluable uh, precepts in every society before it can be civilized or made free. So Adams is arguing, even, even if we say, I don't believe in God and I don't believe this stuff came from God, even if you hold to that, you've got to protect private property. And if, you, if private, private property is not protected, then the other, um, uh, uh, the, the other pieces can't be protected either. Adams also says, property is surely a right of mankind as, as really as liberty. And James Madison says, government is instituted to protect private, to protect property of every sort, as well as that which lies in the various rights of individuals. As that which is termed particularly expresses this being the end of government, that alone it is a just government which impartially secures to every man whatever he owns. When the framers were um, referencing private property, and they almost always put it in, in like religious language, they saw owning private property as like this like religious virtue with the words that they used. They mean just not land, as a great man many mistakenly believe, when first exposed to the philosophy, but to all one's possessions, his books, his shoes, his pillow shams, his house, his rusty rake hanging in the shed, and most certainly his money, his paycheck, and his bank accounts, anything in short that is a product of his labor. So that becomes the first piece of why private property is so important. Again, it's kind of been, when we talk about private property in a lot of places we talk about it in the form of just land, but it's not that. It's everything that I own. If you come on my property, it's not just my land that you trespass on. If you go in my house, you've trespassed in my house. If you take something away from my property that was there without my permission, you've stolen from me. Everything within the boundaries of my property is mine. It has my name on it. And, I, and the rule of law should, should protect me from everything, you know, than everything that I have. So the Constitution never names private property um, and lists it all out, everything they, they meant. They just left it in a general term, private property, and we've been developing the fullness of that term in the history of our country. So... In, in 2005, actually, I wasn't working with the state at this time, but this, this court case really caught my attention. Uh, in 2005, there was um, a lady by the name of Kilo who sued the city of New London, Connecticut, because New London, Connecticut came in and condemned her property. Now, she was going to get paid for it, but they condemned her property to be used in a private venture that was considered good for the community. Now this was a huge leap in private property 
Because up until that point, the firewall said, like, if the state of Delaware comes in and I come here, well, you live in Maryland. Okay, but Maryland. State of Maryland comes in, and they're working on the road out in front of your house, and it's been determined that they need 10 feet of your front yard. They can't just take it. There's a whole procedure, and you have to be paid whatever is considered the fair market value for your property. But the reason that eminent domain works is because that taking is deemed necessary for the public because the street in front of your house is a public street. So we can all ride on that street. We all have access to that street. And so when they widen it and put in sidewalks, that's considered for the benefit of the community. That's been the firewall that's been there. The government has to demonstrate in court and it was one of the things I did when I worked in real estate. I, uh, along with the attorneys, worked in preparing the, the brief that we had to turn into court showing that we actually needed the land and that demonstrating that we needed 10 feet. Because you might come back and go, well, you can do everything you want to do in five feet. Why are you taking five more feet of my property? I, don't, I, I disagree with that. And you have the right to go to court against the state and say, I'm willing that they have five but I don't think they should get 10. What are they going to do with the other, other five feet? I'm still going to be cutting the grass. So if they own it, they can cut the grass. And they say, well, we will once a year. <laughs> so, but the, the rule of law was there protecting private property. You have a right of appeal. Even when the government can show public need, you still have the right to a jury trial you have the right to have a separate appraisal done. You have a right to you know, have an attorney. All those things, those are your legal rights, and the state or the federal government can't violate that. In this case, in the state of Connecticut, they came in because the politicians had struck a deal with a local developer, and they were going to do a, a private uh, – it was a shopping center, and it's kind of a – it was for – that the town had decided they needed a better commercial area and this particular property was in their way. So they condemned the property. Now the lady was going to get paid for the property. That's, that wasn't the issue. It was that uh, they had crossed a barrier and said now the government can hook up with private and can condemn property. That was a huge leap and the Supreme Court actually upheld it. 2005, uh, it was Kelo versus the, the state of Connecticut. At, well, actually, the town of New London in the state of Connecticut. But the, so from that point on, the Supreme Court agreed that private and public can co-mingle and can take my land for their co-mingling, which I don't know if that strikes you as very serious. That strikes me as extremely serious. Because now, with the, right, with the right political muscle and the right private money, you, they can do anything they want. So now they can look at my farm and say, wow, we think this would, you know, Milford is really stuck on parking. We don't have a lot of parking. We think we'll just condemn your farm and make it a parking lot, and then we can run buses from your place to, the, to downtown Milford. Yeah, that's a great idea. And I'm like, no way. And they're like, no, it's done. Well, if I, I can appeal that, 
I could argue against that, but the fact that I even have to appeal it, we've crossed the, we've crossed a barrier. My my rights are not being protected like they should. Okay. And this is in the U.S. You know, when I said last week one of the the problems in a lot of the third world countries, um, at least the the few that I've been involved with, um, but I know it's it's pretty much universal, and they talked about it in the in the video as well. If you have a farmer that's that's tilling land, but they don't own the land. There's something in the heart of a man, woman, when you own it, you treat it differently than when you don't. Yeah. And not only do you treat it differently, it changes how you view your surroundings. All of a sudden, if I own property, the, the, the litter on the sidewalk in front of my house becomes important to me. Hey, this is my house. I don't want no litter out. My, maybe don't throw trash in my front of my house. Stop putting trash in my house. So I pick it up, which then begins to change how a whole street looks at their property. But that, that gets born in, in owning property and knowing that I own it. In a lot of governments, I might have title to the property, but at any given moment, they come in and they nationalize it, and now I don't own it. I might have, I might have invested most of my life and hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to build this thing up, and now I've got a nice house. I've got, I got a little business going on the corner of the property. I got all these things, and the government comes along and says, yeah, we want it. So they nationalize it. And I have no right of appeal, may get paid pennies on the dollar if I get paid anything, but I've lost everything. That affects how you do life. It, it might be hard for us in this country to even wrap around how, that, how you feel different if you were in that situation, because we don't, at least at this point, we don't live in that. We still own our property. I can still buy property. I can still sell property. You know, um, but to, in order for us to move into wealth, and this is a general statement because I, I definitely believe there are cases where this statement does not pertain. But if I'm going to build wealth, part of building wealth is ownership. Because when I own it, I feel different about it. That in itself is wealth. Um, I, I've, lived, I've lived on the property where we're at now since 2003. I've walked on that land my whole life, but I, I've owned just the eight acres where our house and barn is since 2003. I can tell you that it feels different now that I own it all than it did when I owned eight acres. There's something deep within us that's part of dominion, that's part of what God has put in us for proper, to, to own property. Um, so it, it, begins to, it begins to change um, how people do life. And I've, if I'm going to own property, then, as I already said, I need the rule of law 
to protect what I own and the right of appeal when I don't feel I've been treated fairly in, in the recourse of things. Um, and, and I'll say this too, that when we talk about the rule of law, the, it, the law doesn't always rule in my favor. You know, in 1972, when Roe v. Wade was uh, uh, set in motion, established by the Supreme Court, because it never was a law, that was, that was, they just established that and somehow said it's in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights. But in 1972, when they did that, I was adamantly opposed to that decision, and I've re remained adamantly opposed to that decision from the beginning. Now, my reasons for being opposed might not be quite what you think, but um, I've been opposed to it. But in the rule of law, I don't go and attack the judges when they're having dinner at a restaurant. I don't burn their houses down. I have the right to peaceful assembly. Yeah, I can stand in front of the Supreme Court with my banner saying, I disagree with what you've done. But I don't have the right to attack the people who are, who are responsible for making the decisions. So in the rule of law, there is also self-control. And if I don't like a law, then I go about working to try to change that law into something that I feel is more favorable and more just than the law, the law we currently have. But again, as a believer, I don't vilify the person. I don't trash that person. I don't go put stuff in there. You know, I don't go to their house. I don't No, That's not the way it works. That's not how the rule of law works. That's. That's the beginning and the, the perpetration of anarchy that will find you and will hunt you down and will make you pay. Then the next time you have to make a decision, you'll call us first and we'll tell you what you're supposed to say. Now, I will take ownership that the church, through a lot of our anti-abortion protests, we actually taught the other side those tactics. We did that. We made sure we, that all the abortion doctors, their names were plastered everywhere. We, we did a lot of things that you know, we should not have done. So we can't be too mad when they pick up the weapons we left and turn them against us. And when we, the church, see violence at that level as being reasonable and God-sanctioned, when the other side uses it back against us, we have little argument to say that they shouldn't be doing that. Okay, intermission. Everybody still breathing? Okay. Numbers, 33, 50, uh, 53 through 54. And you shall take possession of the land and settle on it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe, you will be given a large inheritance. And to a small tribe, you shall be given a small inheritance. Wherever the lot, the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. This is amazing to me. This, this is the first place in Scripture where, that I'm familiar with where 
actual property rights and property boundaries are brought forward and the rule of law is put with them that this is the way it shall be, right? Um, so this in establishing private property, you know, Yahweh even establishes the, 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 um, the pattern of inheritance when he says, and this will be an inheritance and it's from me. I started this. If anybody's getting warm, it's not because we don't turn down the air conditioner, it's that the compressors burn up. I mean, it's not burning currently, but maybe it is. I mean, the temperature's going up and that makes this, all of us tired, so I'll try to get this wrapped up. So the inheritance from God to the person when the lot is cast. So when they cast a lot, however it fell, that now is my property, it has my name on it. So when the, the lot falls, the individual is the owner of the measured piece of land and all that is on the land. So, so from the very beginning, this is all the way back in Deuteronomy, scripture is giving us examples of God interacting with men saying, this is how property should be handled. This is what you should do with property. Deuteronomy 19:14, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land and the land your God is giving you to possess. So the first law of protecting the individual property, don't move the boundaries. You know, it, that, that's my property. Don't move that stone. That stone's there and I am right up to that stone. Don't move it. And Proverbs 23.10, again, do not move the ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. So again, there's a rule of law set, even for the fatherless. Don't go in. Don't take advantage over a weaker person. Don't use this as an opportunity to steal someone else's land. Which brings us to this, to this point of, what, you know, don't covet what belongs to others. You know, when we look at the Ten Commandments, we can easily say, well, thou shalt not covet. And we kind of pass that off like, yeah, I know, I, I shouldn't, but, you know, I can't help it. I mean, the, you know, the, the car that James drove up to church in, I've wanted a car like that my whole life, man. I just really want that car. I mean, I looked inside, everything about it is beautiful. The seats, everything. It's just the way I always want a car. And we say, well, that's like coveting. No, that's more like just I'm just envious. Uh, but coveting is something different. Coveting is when we, we move from, well, I really like that, I really want that, but instead of relying on God as my provider, I start looking at myself as the provider, and now I go about how am I gonna get it? And sometimes coveting, if I don't deal with it in my heart, coveting can really take a deep root and get to the point that if I can't, if I can't get it one way, I'll get it another. So stealing, when it says don't steal, stealing is nothing more than coveting. I checked out everything you got, and I'll take this, this, and this. Um, and, I, and I'm off with it. So coveting, when, when I get involved in coveting, then, you know, in these, these scriptures that we just read, in that place of coveting, I'm willing to move a marker. I'm your, I live next to you. Well, you know, I, I'm not going to move the stone 10 feet all at once. You'd probably notice it. But every time I walk by, I kind of kick it. 
you know, well, over time, the stone's over here. And I, and I certainly have been, uh, you know, familiar with various cases, like in our, in our country, um, you can, there's the right of adverse possession. So if I've openly and notoriously had control of this piece of land for 19 years, even though it doesn't have my name on it, it has your name on it, I can go to court and say, they didn't care about it anyway. For 19 years, I've been cutting the grass, been driving my car on it, walked my dog on it, and I got pictures, and I can show you right off, and if they really cared, they would have done something, and the court is going to rule in their favor. Yeah, you can have it. And I can go, well, wait, wait, wait. I, it's not that I didn't want it. I just never got around to doing anything. And they're like, no, the law says you have to hostily and notoriously maintain your property. So for everybody that owns property, those markers are really important. And you don't want anybody messing with them, right? So here the scriptures are giving us the same thing. It's all the scriptures are recognizing, God is recognizing that in the heart of man, we covet. And if I can't get what I want one way, I'll try to get it another way. And so the reason for not coveting isn't just so much it creates in me bad behavior, but it creates and it, it releases in me an illness in my heart that will ultimately overtake me. Because if I say that God is my provider, then I don't have to steal from you. God will provide. Instead, if God is my provider, then I can, I can actually rejoice with you when you increase in something. And I don't come home and cry all night because you got it and I didn't. I don't know why you always get it. It seems like I never get it. But I don't, it's like, no, just stop it. I just rejoice. It's amazing what God's done. So ultimately, coveting becomes offensive to the Lord because it, it's me saying, you don't take good care of me. And you guys might remember a story in, I think it's Genesis, I think like the first two chapters maybe, into the third chapter. Some people got into that problem. They thought God was keeping something from them, and it just didn't really go well. Actually, it's still not going well. So don't do that. God is my provider. I'm going to learn to be content. Paul said, in all things, I've learned to be content. If I'm in a time of abundance, I'll be content. You go, well, that's easy. Yeah, but if I'm in a time of lack, I'm going to be content. God is my provider. And I can say in the 50-plus now, well, almost 51 years of walking with him, he has always provided. He hasn't always provided when I told him to do it. He has always provided. And I can look back in many cases and go, after the fact, you look back and go, dang, your plan was actually better than mine. And I was pretty sure I had the best plan. But you actually worked this out better than I had even anticipated. So I, I think I said last week, you can't measure, if you try to measure everything on a daily basis, you won't see it. You have to allow time to be in your calculation because over time, he is my provider. Over time, he not only has supplied my needs, he's pretty darn good at hitting my wants. 
And I know people are like, well, God's not obligated to give you what you want. He only he's only obligated himself to what you need. And I, I don't necessarily take issue with that, but he likes giving me what I want too. Yeah. I'm a parent. I like giving my kids what they want. I don't always like have to, you know, send me an essay on why you need this, and then I'll tell you whether I gave you 10 bucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's good, but when I covet, when I said in my heart that, I, um, that he's not going to give it to me, or he doesn't want me to have it, then I've set myself up in, in coveting to, to go after it which ultimately is idolatry because then you're not God, I'm God. And I'll run this show and actually uh, I may not say it out loud, but I think I do a better job. So anyway, that's it. It's hot in here. This might be a good time to just have everybody sit and think about coveting and we're going to burn it out of you. <laughs> Give a whole new, this is, this is the fire of God here, folks. This is the fire of God. He's cleansing. Lord, thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for where we are. I thank you that as the church, you're giving us understanding in how to move forward. And Lord, we do pray for this land. We pray for the, the, the government officials and all that goes in to, to what it takes for this country to move. And Lord, I thank you in many places, in many high places, your people are there. Uh, Lord, I'm just mindful of even on a weekly basis, the prayer and praise service that happens in the halls of Congress every week. Uh, Lord, those prayers are not for nothing. And those times of worship are not for nothing. Uh, Lord, in that um, the, the influence that they gain um, by being there consistently. So Lord, I thank you for that and, and just bless them that they continue to do what they do and for all the voices of the kingdom that you have strategically placed. Um, so Lord, we pray for the country. We, we, we pray for, for uh, all, that, all that is and, and trust you that you are establishing your kingdom and you've invited us not only to be in it, but to part, participate in it being advanced. We give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I hope I didn't bum you out too much.